in the city, we have one of the, we have one of the best economies ever in the city. I rate it a 9.5 on a scale of 1 to 10. We have this incredibly long-running economic expansion. It will end. I don't know when, but it will end. And if it ends badly, if we experience a significant downturn, uh, worse than the last one we had after the financial crisis, we're not going to be able to maintain all these people. And the budget is so big that it's going to have to be cut a lot. Right. Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Thanks for joining us on today's episode. You can find us on Twitter to join the conversation and let us know what you think of the podcast at Gotham Gazette and at CBCNY. And I'm at TweetBenMax. You can find What's the Data Point on all podcast platforms. And we also post them to the Gotham Gazette and CBC websites. Be sure to tell your friends and family all about the podcast so folks can catch up on past episodes and listen to today's, where we are joined by Greg David of Crane's New York Business for a big, important discussion about a topic that uh, the city is, or at least should be, paying a lot of attention to right now. Welcome, Greg. Thank you. Uh, Our data point for today is four, as in, does Mayor de Blasio deserve four more years? Greg David of Cranes, New York, and of the CUNY Journalism School, is here to discuss with that with us after he recently published a deep, comprehensive piece in Cranes about how Mayor de Blasio has performed during his term thus far as he seeks re-election this fall. It's a fairly favorable look at de Blasio's record, though it points to failures and notes that the mayor has turned off many people in a personal way. In it, Greg writes that the mayor is cruising to re-election, and it is because he has delivered on many of his 2013 campaign promises, including attacking inequality on a variety of fronts and making the lives of many New Yorkers who felt left behind by the Bloomberg years better. Greg goes into significant detail to make the case, give a fairly comprehensive look at de Blasio's record, and today, 1,373 days into de Blasio's term and just 33 days before election day, Greg David of Cranes is here with us. So, Greg, um, how would you sort of capture the essence of what you were putting forth in this piece and this look at at de Blasio's record? What's sort of your um, little longer than an elevator pitch about what you found? And then we'll go into a lot of the detail. Well, the first thing that I would point out is that he is the luckiest mayor in the city's history and 50 years, maybe 100 years. He's the first mayor that, uh, at least in 50 years, who didn't inherit a budget deficit. And unlike Koch, Dinkins, Giuliani, and Bloomberg, he did not take office at a time of a significant crisis where many people thought the city's future was at stake. He inherited a $3 billion budget surplus, virtually unheard of. So I think that's the first context. Second context is... He has delivered on his campaign promises to make people's lives better. He has delivered a minimum wage increase. He has delivered on pre-K. He has um, delivered all sorts of ways for people who are economically disadvantaged in the city, the affordable housing program. And I think most significantly, he has delivered on his pledge 
to change the policing strategies of the city in minority neighborhoods. Um, I didn't understand how cancerous the Kelly last term was on stop and frisk till I did this story. But I think it's fair to say, as someone put it to me, that, that de Blasio and Bratton and Jimmy O'Neill have ended a war against minority communities. That's all on the good side. On the other side, he has dramatically expanded city government. He has dramatically expanded the budget. He's increased the workforce. He has been able to do that because the economy is thriving. When the economy is no longer thriving, we do not know if those are sustainable. My guess, and of course the Citizens Budget Commission's position is, they're not sustainable. Um, he has also failed in part of his affordable housing plan. He's building affordable housing, but he's not winning the battle to increase density because we need more housing overall. Lastly, he doesn't get any, he doesn't get enough credit for what he's done, and he faces big risks going forward because he's a lousy politician. It is the most startling thing of the time he's been mayor, a person who has spent his whole life in politics whose forte was supposed to be politics, turns out to be just terrible at it. Okay. Those are great uh, broad strokes and takeaways, and obviously everyone should read Greg's piece in Cranes, either before, after, or during uh, you listen to this po- you're listening to this podcast. Tell us, um, before we go into some of the specifics, because there's a lot of things I want to sort of poke at there and things I sort of disagree with a little bit um, here and there that you pointed out or you concluded, um, Tell us a little bit about your process here, because you really decided to put some real time and energy into reporting this out. Uh, you said, I'm not just going to sort of sit and write columns about what I think and the people I usually talk to think. I'm going to go out there a bit. So, yeah. So I, um, I wanted to take a look at the de Blasio effort, and I wanted to do so in depth. And I thought I had the clouded cranes to get them to run it in depth. And anyway, in a pinch, I could have published it myself. Um, So I set out to do what I often do. I have like 10 people I talk to about New York all the time. And I sent them an email saying, what are the five areas I should concentrate on? Then I went to talk to virtually all of them in person. And one day I came home and was explaining to the person I live with, something about these interviews. And she looked at me and said, are you going to talk to anyone who likes him? (laughs) And I then exchanged an email with one of the city's leading tech executives on a different subject, and we got onto this. And he said, a fair piece about the first term is well needed. So I took those as my marching orders. Um, I talked to 35, I did 35 separate interviews, the vast majority of which were in person. The administration uh, sat on my request to talk to people there for like a month and a half, and then suddenly I got an email saying, sorry not to get back to you, Um, we'll set up these interviews, although my request to talk to the mayor was politely ignored. Um, I went to the largest pre-K in Brooklyn, I met a woman who works at LaGuardia in Corona, Queens about how de Blasio had changed her life. I went out with two neighborhood coordinating officers. I walked Livonia Avenue in East New York with an affordable housing developer. Um, I also, if this interests anyone, this is what I teach at the CUNY J School. This is what I teach about how people should do it. So I thought I should do it right too. Yeah, I was gonna. I was actually about to say, you know, you have to sort of 
put that in front of your students now and you can say, you know, look at, look at this project I just uh, undertook. Uh, this is how it's done. Uh, not everybody obviously has the time and resources to do that extensive reporting, but it's great and we need it, you know, and at Gotham Gazette, we're certainly looking at the mayor's record and we're going to be publishing a variety of pieces on that um, as election day nears. Um, but this is a, a really good, strong overview. So um, let's talk about inequality. Let's talk about that. The mayor's big frame, the mayor's um, motivating principle, his 2013 campaign target. Uh, you write that, you, and you use some of these examples of people you spoke with, that people's lives are improved on, in very concrete ways, yet on the flip side, sort of some of the larger metrics of income inequality have slightly worsened. So how do you sort of, what's the rub there? The rub is the mayor has no power over the broad economic trends that affect inequality. The rich are getting richer because the markets are soaring, and that's where they get all their money from, and there's nothing he can do about it. And to the extent he thought he could do something about it by raising taxes on them, it would have been on the margin. He's completely hasn't won a single tax increase on the wealthy and isn't likely to do so in the near term. Um, so the big numbers, the Gini coefficient and the percent of income controlled by the top 1% uh, either are just as bad or a little worse. But here's what he has done. So he's the one who campaigned for the $15 an hour minimum wage first. Effectively, his campaign and others forced Governor Cuomo to adopt the position. So I met this woman in, in Queens, and she was making $9 an hour at LaGuardia Airport, and she's now making... Uh, she's going to soon make 13 and then she's going to make $15 an hour. That's a huge increase in the income that she has. Um, people uh, who work in jobs at companies, I think, with more than five employees get paid sick days now. She, this woman got pneumonia um, and had to stay out of work, and she got paid because de Blasio had uh, passed a tough sick leave law. Um, he's increased the living wage for people who have contracts with the city. And pre-K is about two things. Pre-K is about giving um, students a head start on their education. And, but mostly, it relieves family, working families, of this enormous childcare burden in year four. Uh, the woman I talked to saves $150 a week, a very significant amount of money. And that's a big measure. Of, and that's on the of, low end of what people save. Some, you know, I mean, people right. can save even more than that. Right. Well, I mean. the little irony here is, is there are lots of people who can afford $20,000 uh, pre-Ks and pay $20,000 in year three and pay nothing in year four. But the experts say, by the way, this is good because we want universal pre-K because we want all kinds of people in pre-K. So the other thing that pre-K did, though, goes back to one of the things you classify as a bad growth of the city workforce. I think the biggest single growth is at the DOE because they added another grade, right? right. Yep, and that grade is a very labor-intensive grade because the classes are smaller, I think about 18, right? Your piece pointed that out. Um, two adults in the classroom. So that's been a leader. He's, of course, obviously increased the headcount across the board virtually and Department of Correction, et cetera, et cetera, NYPD. Um, and CBC has looked at that quite a bit. Is that really a bad? Is that definitely a bad? It's a budget risk, but those are also, I mean, part of the mayor's frame is that those are middle-class jobs. Um, well, the Citizens Budget Commission certainly thinks it's a bad, and I would say uh, it is. Carol Kellerman, the president, is quoted in my piece as saying, these are the hardest thing, hardest, uh, these 
once you put a person on the payroll, that's the hardest thing to cut when the downturn comes. So you have to, I think you have to distinguish between the pre-K, which led to something new, right, um, and a lot of the other increases, which are just more people throughout the system. Um, the city's defense on this is that it's just a bigger city, you know, 400,000 more people since the last census. But this mayor was very late to the party on trying to make city government more efficient. Uh, mayors before him had done PEGs, which are designed to force agencies to become more efficient. He resisted that for three years. He's, they're only getting into it now. Um, yeah, it's a fairly hollow adjustment as far as I'm concerned because you've grown so much, and now he says, we're instituting a partial hiring freeze. <laughs> it's like, uh, okay, I mean, I guess now you don't really have any, you know, you're, if you've struggled to hire some positions, which they have because they've had so many new lines in the budget at different agencies, um, that's a, a little bit of a fake uh, promise of savings, you know. See, the, the way to look at this is... He, he, in the city, we have, one of the, we have one of the best economies ever in the city. I rate it a 9.5 on a scale of 1 to 10. We have this incredibly long-running economic expansion. It will end. I don't know when, but it will end. And if it ends badly, if we experience a significant downturn, uh, worse than the last one we had after the financial crisis, we're not going to be able to maintain all these people. And the budget is so big that it's going to have to be cut a lot. Right. And it's going to be bad. And that's what the Citizens Budget Commission has been warning about. And that's where he's put us, in a very vulnerable position. And I didn't make a lot of it in the piece. But $7 billion of the city budget comes from Washington. Will the Republicans be able to sharply cut that amount? And it's not just what the city gets, because if the Republicans cut what the state gets, a lot of money in the city comes from the state. I mean, at the moment, the Republicans in Washington haven't accomplished anything, but it is another major risk out there. Yeah, there's a lot of vulnerabilities to the city budget. Obviously, the administration would point to the reserves that they do have. They always, the mayor loves to say, rec, you know, and his people record highs, but as a percentage of the budget, they're not where watchdogs like CBC, the city controller, say they should be. Um, the mayor calls those estimates a little bit, you know, fanciful. But 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 the budget has grown, and you point this out, 80 to $85 billion, about an 18% increase from uh, when the mayor took office. That's a lot of spending. More than twice the rate of inflation. And, you know, something interesting has happened in the last week or so. Uh, Governor Cuomo has decided those surpluses the mayor has built up are are fair game, and he's doing everything as possible to make the city spend it down, whether that's just because of how much he tries to make the mayor fail or, or look bad or whatever, I don't know. But it's very interesting because the city is in much better shape than the state budget. And so, I mean, if the governor succeeds, this will make any downturn even worse. So let's stick with that theme a little bit. Um, going back to sort of his, you, 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 I think you said in the intro here, you know, he's he's bad at politics, um, and I and I've heard you say that in you know other interviews. Um, 
he's gotten a lot done, so he can't be that bad at politics, but we've seen a lot of stumbles. Um, well, I think he's gotten a lot done because he was elected at the right time, because the economy is great. And all those accomplishments, by the way, were early when he was at the height of his popularity and power. That's when pre-K was passed. The policing strategies, um, it's great that he hired Bratton and O'Neill, but they're the ones who did it. So most of these accomplishments are from early on. He's bad at the three most important parts of politics. He doesn't articulate his policies very well, and he doesn't sell them very well. As I pointed out in affordable housing, he he believes, and Alicia Glenn, the deputy mayor who created the housing plan, believe, we have to build lots of housing in order to restrain rents, not for the half a million people who might be helped by his plan, but for the other eight million people. He rarely makes the case effectively, um, and often he just doesn't make the case at all. Um, the pre-K thing is a great example of it. So he pushed pre-K. He got Cuomo to endorse it. Cuomo said he would pay for it without an income tax. Everyone I talked to said the appropriate strategy for the mayor was to declare victory and go home. Instead, he continued to fight about it. Um, he, as a tactician, he has turned out to be terrible. Um, his decision to try to help the Senate Democrats take control of the state Senate at a time when Cuomo had already decided not to do that. 2014, yeah. In 2014, turned out to have backfired completely. It made the Senate Republicans um, implacable enemies. They torture him at every opportunity. He can't get what he wants out of Albany because of that. Uh, just look at mayoral control of the schools. Everyone supports mayoral control of the schools, and yet he practically had to beg to get a one- or two-year extension of it. He also has completely um, hurt his role as a leader of the progressives in America by his decision first not to endorse Hillary Clinton um, and then actually to endorse her. Supposedly, he wasn't endorsing Hillary Clinton because she wasn't progressive enough or he wasn't sure enough that, he wa that she was going to be progressive enough. If he just endorsed Bernie Sanders, it would have come out better because it would have shown him to have been a principled politician. Instead, it was all seen as just a tactical thing. And he has alienated the Clinton wing of the party. He's no longer sought after to speak in these. He had to go off to Germany this summer to have like a starring role in a progressive thing. Invites to Germany, not Iowa. Yeah. And then the last thing is he has waged a needless war with the press and the media in New York. And he started doing this, by the way, before Trump made it the oh, um, I'm, strategy. I'm aware, yeah. Um, and it's just needless. Michael Bloomberg did not like reporters, in my view, but he knew what he had to do to get the job done. And so um, in the piece, I recount these two days when I saw Marsha Kramer of Channel 2 just take him to the take him to the cleaners in her reports. The first time happened in August, and the Post had broken a story that the number of special assistants was up by 25%. There were a million ways he could have answered that question. Instead, he basically said, I need the special assistants because Michael Bloomberg didn't do anything. So Marsha goes out and gets all these Bloomberg people to say on the air, who does he think he is? He's not doing anything. The next day, the mayor's announcing uh, better test scores in the school, but Marsha doesn't report the test scores at all. She reports about the Columbus statue controversy. 
Now, the mayor says he's frustrated because the reporters won't report what he wants, but he doesn't do anything to encourage or give them a reason to do that. He just, um, his disdain for them is returned. And therefore, um, he doesn't have, therefore, New Yorkers don't know what he's accomplished because nobody's doing stories about it. Mitchell Moss, the NYU professor, told me that the first thing a mayor sees when he walks into City Hall for his wing of the, of the building is room nine where the reporters sit. And a smart mayor knows that he governs with room nine in the city, and room nine is how he gets in people's living rooms every day. And this mayor doesn't believe that or care about it. And what I also know is that people around the mayor know and are so frustrated that he doesn't understand this and that he is, I didn't use this phrase in the piece, but I heard it over and over again, his own worst enemy. Yeah, no, I, th- I mean, I think a lot of that's true. I don't know that I have anything you just said that I would disagree with. Um, one thing I'd add is that he came into office clearly believing, and he references this all the time, conventional wisdom isn't worth a darn, right? He, he talks about conventional wisdom all the time because if conventional wisdom was correct, I wouldn't be mayor. And he's used that uh, to justify a lot of his behavior because he thinks that he knows best. He thinks that the new editorial boards weren't with him. A lot of labor wasn't with him. He ran the campaign because he knew how to tap into and he had heard what the populace wanted. So he won. The tabloids are irrelevant in this town. I think they learned some lessons early on that that's not completely the case anymore, not just the sort of tabloids as we think of them, the Post and the Daily News, but even the the local evening TV, as you reference, are sort of in that vein uh, often, and realize that some of these things, whether it was that the continued coverage of homelessness by the tabloids largely and elsewhere, really drove him to finally pay a little closer attention and admit that he hadn't gotten his arms around that. On homelessness, uh, you wrote in your editor's note to the to the piece that that was some, wasn't something you dove into in depth. But in the piece. In the I piece. actually yes, did yes, a lot yes, of reporting yes. on it, but there was a limit to how much I could write, and it didn't quite fit the theme. So, yes, you stated it exactly correctly. Homelessness is the crisis that he did not anticipate. Um, but it's not at the level of Sandy or 9-11 or what the other mayors faced, and he didn't anticipate it. And it's a very complicated issue. You know, what a lot of New Yorkers are very upset about is street homelessness, but there are only about 3,000 people on the street. Um, and a great question is, why are they, why, where did they come from? And I don't have a really good answer on that. Um, I think, Bill Bratton said once in, an, in a forum I attended, I think it was the CBC forum, that court decisions meant that he couldn't do this time what he did in the 90s. And, I, and I'm pretty sure that that meant uh, move them along, maybe not arrest them, but get them out of the uh, most important areas of the city, make their lives so difficult they went off to the shelters. So whether it's the court decisions or the de Blasio administration's attitude, because after all, the city's leading homeless advocate is now the official in charge of it, Steve Banks, I don't know. But the street homelessness really um, antagonizes people, especially the white New Yorkers who don't like the mayor anyway. 
Um, there's a couple groups there, right? There's the people who come into jobs in Midtown and downtown and see homeless people on the streets. And then there's the outer borough folks, maybe some overlap there, but I think a lot not, who don't want shelters in their neighborhoods, right? right? So there's, I think there's, there's a couple of groups there that have that outcry, that have that dissatisfaction around homelessness. The real crisis is not the street homelessness. They make our lives more difficult, but that's not the real crisis. The real crisis is the 50,000 um, people in the shelters, families, primarily families, often headed by um, uh, one parent. Um, and the question is why that issue has gotten worse. Um, I will say that a lot of it is Bloomberg's fault, that there were faulty policies under Bloomberg that artificially drove down the homeless number for a very short period of time. That's what I, I have come to believe. Um, and the other part of it could be the city's great economic success, that these are people who um, just can't pay the rent, whose low-cost apartments have gone beyond their means. But I was told a very interesting statistic, and I haven't gotten to the bottom of this. 60%, more than 60% of the families who enter the city's homeless system have been there before. Um, and not just like last year, but five years ago or six years ago. So there's something more going on here mm -hmm. than the economy. Um, What's going to happen? Is the mayor's homeless plan going to work? I don't know. They're going to have to build a lot of shelters. The shelters are going to have to be better. It's very hard politically. We'll see what happens in the second term. Talk about political stumbles. I mean, one of the things that I've sort of harped on and pointed out over the last several months is that they had to do another sort of refashioning of homelessness in an election year, right? Because they had taken too long to sort of refurbish things. They had a homeless um, shelter chief, you know, the Department of Homeless Services chief who had to go. He wasn't effective. They had to move things under banks. But still, in part because those subsidy programs under Bloomberg had vanished and they had to recreate them. And then I do think there is a lot of leeriness among landlords. I don't think that they're making that up in terms of taking those vouchers. Absolutely a very difficult problem. The good news for him is that he uh, he's so far ahead in the polls that it's not going to be a political problem for him now. question is, what's he going to be able to do in the second term? Right, and, and the other thing that I think was a miscalculation, really, that the thing that, you know, I think on the political sort of messaging and branding that you, you spoke about as one of his chief weaknesses is they came out with this election year... Uh, rehash of a, 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 a refashioning of a homelessness plan, and they led with, we're going to need 90 new shelters, which is just a terrible way to roll out your new homelessness plan. Nobody really got that they're going to end the hotel use and they're going to stop the cluster sites. That's sort of around the periphery. All everybody heard was 90 new shelters, and you get people from the mayor's allies to the mayor's biggest critics saying, you're going to do what? Um, so, the, you know, that I put um, in that list as well, although, and this is something I looked at a little, uh, a few months back, was it does seem like they finally broke that trajectory. You know, the, the growth has sort of slowed, if not stopped, and actually came down slightly in terms of the shelter population, but it is now, how do you manage really reducing this population? And the goal that he set is minimal, a reduction of 2,500 in shelters. That's true. So when I interviewed Steve Banks, he put it to me this way about how things could be worse. 
he said, I, I was challenging him on the fact that New York City is the only city in the country with a right to shelter, primarily because of Banks's work here. And he said to me, well, that's true, but we have 3,000 people on the street and there are 45,000 homeless on the street in LA, I think that says a lot. So mm -hmm. that would be his response to that. So we're going to be here for a few more minutes with Greg David of Cranes, New York, and CUNY J School, um, who just wrote a long and interesting uh, and very worthwhile piece in Cranes about uh, Mayor de Blasio's record. So obviously in direct connection, you touched on housing a little bit, in direct connection with homelessness. What, um, what is the real essence of the debate about his housing program? Let's just talk about that a little bit more, because this is beyond pre-K, this, and maybe police reform, this is right up there as, as top three, let's say, right? There are three parts to the strategy. Part one is spend a lot more money to build fully affordable units. The, most the second and probably most important part of it is to take the profits private developers make and force them to provide large measures of affordable, large numbers of affordable units through what's called mandatory inclusionary zoning. They can only do this when they get rezonings, either of specific uh, parcels or of neighborhoods. Those, the, the number here is 200,000, 80,000 new units and 120,000 preserved. And in that sense, they are ahead of schedule in doing that. And if you work out the numbers, if we do that, 500,000 New Yorkers will benefit. Part three of the strategy was to rezone 15 neighborhoods in the city to dramatically increase density and to let the buildings go higher in order to spur the creation of more housing because if people continue to move to New York and we don't build enough housing, rents are going up no matter what. So this is the part that, in my view, has is the most in trouble. We are almost four years in, and they've accomplished two rezonings, East New York and Far Rockaways, neither of which are economically strong enough to produce market-rate housing. So effectively, the first two rezonings they did will accomplish nothing in this regard. By the end of the year, there will be a vote on East Harlem. It is the first... Um, of the rezonings that could actually work this way, probably going to pass, modified a bit. But in this fight, the mayor has lost the public's understanding of the issue. It has come to be widely believed in New York that it is the building of new units that raises rents and creates gentrification. That couldn't be more untrue, although people go crazy when I say that. The rents are going to go up. The city's economy and the movement of new people into the city are going to force rents up and are going to gentrify, maybe one might say improve, to neighborhoods. So we now have people believing something that is both economically not true and counterproductive to their own interests, because if we don't build housing, rents will go up more. The neighborhoods will gentrify no matter what. And they have been unable to make much of a dent in the public's understanding of the issue. This, I think, is where this goes back to some of the political failings that, that we've talked about and that you list in the piece and, and we've discussed, is that 
the mayor, it took a long time for him to really, I think, grasp, and I don't know that he's still there, of what people want to sort of see from a mayor of New York City. And again, this is, I don't know that we have great polling on this, so this is a little bit subjective, but he wasn't in those neighborhoods himself proactively making that case. And this is on housing and rezoning, but it could be translated to a number of topics. He wasn't there saying, here's what we're going to bring to you, here's what we need to do, and here's why, and having that conversation himself. Did he maybe have some community affairs people doing it at community board meetings? Sure, but that's not the mayor doing it, and that's not making the case proactively. I would only say, they would say, well, he does. Brian Lehrer says to me, uh, he does on my show, um, and when East New York was being voted on, he started doing it for a while. But it took him a year or a year and a half to start doing it. He did it for a while on East New York. He did it in Harlem recently in a very contentious community board meeting. But these are at town halls. Yeah, but I agree. You're, 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 but, but yes. After the fact. Otherwise, this is not the mayor in 2014 going to a vacant lot and saying, here's where we're going to build housing. It's going to have market rate. It's going to have affordable housing. You, the community is going to benefit in X, Y, and Z ways. You're absolutely right. He did not do Thank it you. from day one. He did not do it consistently. He did not say, this is my mission. I tell this little story in the piece. He did this pretty high-profile event with Paul Krugman this summer on inequality. And Krugman is very nice to him and believes in him, very takes him through all the things he's accomplished, and then says to him, what more can you do in land use? And Krugman understands this issue and writes about it a lot. That was an opening for de Blasio to talk about how we're going to increase density. Instead, he went and talked about another tax on the rich. I thought that represented completely the failings you are talking about. Krugman handed him an opportunity to do it, and he went to his other great obsession, taxing the rich. And I know that whether it's a Brian Lehrer conversation or a town hall or a conversation with Paul Krugman, you know, the town hall is, I think, different than those other two because there will be media coverage of those things, perhaps, and there's certain audiences, but you're trying to reach more people, and that's sort of been lost, I think, at times with, with the approach. All right, last couple of minutes here, Greg. Um, so let's talk about the election and what's next. What are you watching for? I mean, you see, you write in your piece, he's coasting to re-election. Is there anything you're sort of looking at here as either a way that Nicole Maliotakis could make this interesting or something that we need to watch in terms of how the mayor does on election day? Um, and what do you think happens thereafter? Well, what do we need to watch for? Um, I have no confidence that Nicole Malatakis will do any better. I was in an editorial board meeting with her this week, and her performance was less impressive than I thought it was um, in the early summer when I did a debate with her. Um, so no, um, I had hoped that she would make a better case and uh, put the mayor in a spot where he had to do something. The biggest problem with the fact that the mayor hasn't faced significant opposition is that they have no plans for the second term. The one thing that struck me most about my interviews with the people in the administration is that when I asked them about the next term, I got nothing back. Mm -hmm. So here's Now, does that mean they're working on them and they don't need to talk about them? I don't know. And the last thing, of course, is because of term limits, he's a lame duck on day one. Um, the first deputy mayor, Anthony Shores, 
uh, when I asked him about that, he said, well, you know, the second terms aren't so bad. The third terms are really <laughs> bad. Um, uh, we'll see. I think Giuliani's second term was kind of tough. Right. Um, Especially we'll if the see. mayor's running around trying to build a national profile. He could have a lot of, a lot of trouble um, at home. On the agenda items for a second term, you know, Politico just had this piece that basically reinforced that idea that they don't really have that much that's new. Um, is that such a bad thing? I mean, I a I do think he's going to make some proposals here before election day, maybe right before the first debate, maybe at the first debate. Who knows when? But I do think there'll be a couple new things. But he's laid out over the course of the last year, let's say six or seven items that sort of form a second-term agenda, whether it's this jobs plan, it's moving forward with the closure of Rikers, et cetera. There are things out there that need to be moved forward. Is there anything wrong, though, with a message of we're making progress and we really need to go further? Um, Yes, because the world's going to change and you want somebody doing things. And the jobs plan, which I didn't write about, not a single person has said a good word to me about the jobs plan. Um, it's not a substantive proposal. It's all over the place. It was it was almost like to be sort of like a campaign, let's hit a few buttons things. Um, so if what we're going to get is something like the jobs plan, that is not good. Yeah, that did, that did not come to good to great reviews and is still being sort of dissected as being um, less than, as you, as you point out. So, um, Greg David, thank you for being here. Um, My pleasure. We'll, thank we'll, you we'll for having me. And uh, you should check out Greg's piece in Cranes and follow Greg on Twitter and read all his columns. He often has less comprehensive than this, quick columns on the economy that are always uh, worth reading. So check out Greg David's work at Cranes. And thank you for listening to What's the Data Point. Bye. Bye.